This morning we're reading from Mark chapter 16. If you picked up a church Bible on the way in, you'll find it on page 829. It's also going to be on the screen behind me and we're reading verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might go up and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they went on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray and then we'll get into this passage. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you that we can uh, gather together again today. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the book of Mark and the journey that we've been on. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we uh, look at this passage again today, that you would challenge us, uh, that you would change us, and that you would help us to see what difference this uh, makes to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, Elizabeth and I watched a show on Netflix called Magic for Humans, and it was exactly what you would expect, magic for humans. I do wonder what the show Magic for Dogs looks like, uh, but this one was Magic for Humans, and uh, one of the best tricks on it was where he made a guy or two guys think that they were invisible. Now, how do you make two guys think that they're invisible? Well, he paid a crowd to come along and basically pretend that when he put the blanket on them and then took it off, that they were invisible. So he gets the guys up, he puts the blanket on top of them, he says some magic words, rips it off, the crowd reacts, the guys think that they're invisible. Now, to be fair, there is some other tricks going on as well. Not many, but some other tricks is going on as well. But it's mainly the crowd's reaction that makes them think that they're invisible. Now, the reason I love this uh, particular trick is because the focus is not on the magic, the focus is on the response. And the two guys couldn't respond any differently. The first guy loves it. He loves being invisible. He's excited by it. And he does maybe what you would think you would do if you were invisible. He goes around tapping people on the shoulder. He listens to conversations. He tries to get in people's photos. He even tries to steal a bottle of wine. To which someone in the crowd pretty quickly on their feet goes, Wow, look, a floating bottle of wine. And then he has to put it back. Now, when you know, the magician reveals him at that point, he loves it. He's excited. He thanks the magician for making him invisible. Then there was the second guy. This guy couldn't have reacted any differently. He hated it. In fact, he was afraid by what had just happened. Couldn't believe that no one could see him. He was like freaking out, going around, asking people, trying to get people's attention. You know, he was definitely frustrated by it. And then when he got revealed uh, at the end, he wouldn't even shake the magician's hand, right? He was so like, he was worried that he couldn't become visible again. And so he was afraid. And, and so you get to kind of watch it in the rawness, these two people's responses. Now, the reason I love it, again, is not because of the magic, right? In fact, maybe I love it because I'm not being deceived, 
right? There's no funny business going on. There's no like, you know, pretending to, you know, channel some inner darkness or whatever. There's no deceiving me at the very least. But the reason I love this is because the focus is on the response. The focus is on the people's response. And we see in that the rawness of this, you see what we know to be true, that to big things, it creates big responses, to big moments, things that we witness or, or things that happen to us, it creates a natural big response. Now, the reason this uh, affects us today is because we get to the end of something really big, right? We've been on a big journey throughout the book of Mark. We started this uh, in, at the start of term four last year. On and off, we've been looking at the book of Mark, and now we get to the end of the book of Mark, and what we've seen in this book is some really big stuff. Right? We've seen that the God of the universe has entered into humanity to save the world. We've seen things like Jesus heal a paralyzed man and give sight to the blind. We've seen number of healings over and over again. We've seen Jesus cast demons out. We saw the big stuff last week of Jesus dying on the cross. Today, as we look to our passage again, we see another big moment. And the question for us as we get to the end of the book of Mark is, in light of the bigness of Jesus, the question is, what is the response it's supposed to create? What is the response that we're supposed to kind of make as we get to the end of the book of Mark? What are we supposed to do with all this? Ultimately, what does it mean for us in the bigness of Mark? Well, we're going to see that as we look at the book of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles today, or even if you don't, it'll be on the screen. We pick the story up from Mark chapter 16, verse 1. This is what he says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? What's the response that we're supposed to make to the big stuff we've seen in the book of Mark? Well, before we get that, Mark wants to highlight the last big moment of Jesus' life, at least in the book of Mark. And of course, we heard it read out before, it's the resurrection. It's Jesus coming back from the dead. And this story here, he highlights, and it begins with these three women in verse 1 who are walking to the tomb. Now, we don't know about these, much about these three women. We got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and uh, Salome. We don't know a whole lot about them, but we have seen them before. So we saw them before at the end of chapter 15 in verse 40. We saw that these women watched from a distance Jesus die. Right? So, so these women saw the crucifixion. They saw the nails in his hands. They saw the nails in his feet. They witnessed the, the crown of thorns crushed into his head. They watched Jesus die. Then we saw at the end of chapter 15, uh, the two Marys, Salome's not there, but the two Marys witness where Jesus is buried. Now they're back together, reunited, and here they are going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. Now, I don't know what thoughts you have when you think of anointing a body. I kind of go to like they're trying to make Jesus a mummy, but that's not what they're doing, right? They're just going to kind of help the smell, right? This is essentially, you know, as a, as a body would, you know, go over time, it would begin to rot and stink. And so these women are going to actually just help the smell. This is kind of the first original diffuser, right? I mean, if they live today, they just plug that in the wall and set it for six hours and come back and it would smell great. Right? We don't know how it happens, but it's good. This is the kind of the first infuser. That's basically what they're doing. They're helping the smell. So they go to the tomb on Sunday morning as the sun's up, 
And as they're walking to the tomb, they realize they have a problem. In verse 3, they ask, who's going to roll away the tomb, the stone? Right now, for those of us who are planners here, we can't really understand this verse. Right? Like, how could they not have thought of that before they actually got out on their journey? Right? I mean, they saw the stone being put in place. Why wouldn't they just have thought that beforehand? I mean, some of us don't even leave the house with planning what we're doing the day. I mean, we love lists. We love ticking them off. We love that. We can't understand what Mary's doing. Except the, the reality is here, not just the Mary, but the, the two Marys and Salome, the, the reality is maybe they're not planners, right? Or maybe they're just caught up in the moment. Maybe they've been through a lot and they just missed it. But regardless of that, they're here and they realize they have a problem, right? There's a stone in front of the tomb. Now, what's interesting for us is as we read this, the problem the women face is actually bigger than just the stone being put in front of the tomb. We know this from other eyewitness accounts, but they do have a problem, but the problem's bigger than they realize. Now, they understand that the problem is the stone. So the way tombs were built back then is you would basically cut a room out of a big stone, right? Almost like a cave. And to kind of seal the tomb, you would put a stone in front of it. Now, the stone wasn't, you know, a massive boulder. The stone was probably like a more of a circular disc type thing. And they would roll it in front. And when they would roll it in front, it would go into a groove in front of that tomb. Okay, so what this meant was one guy or maybe two guys could roll it into place, but once it was in the groove in front of the tomb, you would need like seven or eight guys to actually move it away. That's just how it kind of worked. And they would put that there to stop animals going in or people going in or the smell coming out. They, They would put the stone there. So this is a problem for these three women, right? They realize that they have a problem in the stone. But as I said before, we know that their problem is actually much bigger than that. Right, because of what we see in another eyewitness account in the book of Matthew. So Matthew talks about how the Jewish leaders at the end of the book of Matthew went to Pilate and asked Pilate for a guard. They wanted a guard because they were scared the disciples would come and steal the body. So Pilate gives them a guard to protect the tomb. Okay, so, so not only is there a stone, there's a guard as well. And on top of that, the Jewish leaders put a seal there. Now, the seal was basically a bit of clay connecting the tomb and the stone, right? So it meant that if you rolled the stone away, you would see when it's, the seal would be broken, right? So if someone claimed that no one had been in the tomb and the seal was broken, you know, they would know it. But obviously, the bigger problem is for these women, the guard. Okay, so a Roman guard was like four to 20 Roman soldiers who were trained in military combat. That's who this guard was, right? So don't think security guard with a torch and a phone who can call the cops if something happens. These are like military trained level army kind of guys guarding this tomb. And they're here to protect from disciples coming and stealing the body. So my gut is it wasn't just four of them. It was closer to kind of 16 to 20 of them. And to give you a picture of how strong or like the the level of seriousness of this guard, if you fell asleep on duty, you'd be killed. That was kind of the Roman guard, right? That's how seriously they took their job. That's how they were trained. If you fell asleep, you'd be killed. This is who's standing in front of this stone. Okay, so the problem of the women is the stone, but it's also the guard and the seal, right? And so logic tells us 
these women, even if they want to, even if they had a couple of guys with them to move the stone out of the way, these women aren't getting into this tomb. These women aren't going to be able to anoint this body with spices. And so they kind of realize that in verse 3. They say, who's going to move the stone away? But they keep walking to the tomb. And then as we see, one problem is replaced with another problem. Because we read in verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So we're expecting a stone and a guard and a seal. We're expecting that. The women are expecting a stone and a a lifeless body, right? Maybe beginning to rot that they would put the spices on. But what we see is actually pretty different. Instead of a stone, there is an empty tomb. Instead of a body, there is no one. Instead of being alone, there is a young guy sitting there. Right, One problem of the stone and of the lifeless body and the smell is replaced by another problem. No one's around, the stone's moved, and some young dude's sitting in the tomb. Right Now, you have to feel for the women at this point. I mean, they've been through a crazy kind of 48 hours, right? Like on the Friday, they watched as their friend and, their f- and the person they followed died. Right? I mean, they saw Jesus being brutally beaten and killed in the most humiliating way. They watched that happen. Then they saw Jesus being buried. They saw the stone being put in front of the tomb. Then on the Saturday, they mourned for Jesus. On the Sunday, they wake up to go and anoint this lifeless body, which even in and of itself is a big move from these women to go and do this. I mean, these women have gone through a crazy amount. The emotion of that, the heartbreak of that. I mean, they they had hope in this leader and then he died. So hope moved to hopelessness and then here they are on the way to the body and as they get there, the body's not even there. And there's a young guy there, right? This is like a melting pot of confusion and emotion. There is a lot going on for these women, right? I mean, you can kind of feel for them in this space. I mean, that is a crazy kind of Friday through to Sunday morning. This is unbelievable what these women have gone to. And so they're sitting here in this confusion. I mean, we're told they're alarmed. They're freaking out, right? They're worried about this. They're sitting here in this confusion. And of course, there's questions being asked, right? Like, who moved the stone away? And where is the guard? And who's this young guy sitting in the tomb? But while there's questions being asked and emotion around the events... God doesn't leave them in this. He quickly answers them, and He quickly gives them guidance on what's happening, and He does this through this young guy sitting here. Now, the reality is the young guy sitting on the right of the tomb isn't just some, you know, guy. In fact, because of what he's about to say, which is a message from God, we can safely assume that this young man is an angel, right? Not all angels have wings, And that's true for this guy here. And he speaks the message from God to them in this confusion, in these questions. And what does the young man say? Well, we see it in verse 6. He says, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you uh, into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
the angel tells them where the body is. And the body has not been stolen from the disciples. Right? The disciples did not gather together and somehow, you know, fight, you know, work their way into an army and be able to somehow miraculously defeat the Romans and then steal the body. That's not what happened. And Jesus wasn't like alive the whole time and he just knocked on the stone and then the guards just let him out. This was not some magic trick where the guards were in on the trick, where they were paid to, you know, react in a certain way. This is not what's going on here. The reason there's no body is because Jesus has actually risen from the dead. He's been raised by God the Father from the dead. Jesus has simply conquered death. Now, the reality is in this moment, Jesus said that this would happen. Four times in his life, he said that he would rise again. He said it three times to the disciples in chapter 8, 9, and 10. And then he said it explicitly to Peter in chapter 14, that he would rise again and meet them in Galilee. That's why Peter's name is mentioned, especially there. Jesus said that he would rise again. He pointed to this fact that he would die and then he would rise again. And here the angel is saying, look, what he said was true. Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, again, we got to feel for these women, right? I mean, this has been the craziest kind of 48 hours, and here they are expecting a lifeless body, and instead the angel speaks to them and says, Jesus is alive. Now, can you kind of feel that? I mean, can you imagine being in that tomb, looking where the body was laid? You saw him being laid there, and yet now it's gone. Now the body is no more. Can you feel the weight of like an angel actually speaking to them? And these women, like, they've not had Easter before, right? They've not experienced Easter Sunday. No one, they haven't heard this story before. No one is telling them this is happening in front of their eyes. They are witnessing the power of God work, right? They get to see with their own eyes what God is doing. They witness something supernatural. Right? They see, they're the first people on hand to actually see that Jesus has risen again. This is the biggest moment in history, right? that Jesus would actually come back from the dead. And these three women saw it with their own eyes. They're here in this tomb, no tomb, uh, no stone, no body, no guard. They're here looking where the body was laid and it's gone. These women see this with their own eyes. And so the question for us then is not what are these women kind of feeling in this moment, but what do they do with this? Because the angel says, this is what's happened, and then the angel says, go tell the disciples. Now, I don't know what we would expect from these women, right? I feel like if this was today, this would, someone would post this online, and it would go viral, and they'd be, you know, on every TV show and every radio show. They would, you know, be talking about it all the time. That's what would happen today. But of course, they didn't have the internet back then. And so, uh, instead, I, I mean, there's part of us that's kind of expecting them to go and tell everyone, right? I mean, that's what they, they've just witnessed the biggest moment in history. You're expecting them to go and tell everyone that they possibly can right? Because big moments create big responses. That's what happens. Big moments create big responses. We're expecting something massive here from these women. But what do they do with this? We see it in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The women do nothing. Nothing. 
right? Now, now, doesn't this feel strange as we read this? Right? How weird of an ending is verse 8? I mean, this is after the whole of this message, of the whole of the book of Mark, after some really big moments, like Jesus, you know, healing a paralyzed man, giving sight to the blind, dying on a cross, God entering into humanity to give us a hope of something greater. This is a moment, this is a story, this is a book with really big news for a world. Right? For, weary, for a weary world, this is big news for us that we can have a hope of something greater. And yet this book finishes with women who run away scared. And Mark tells us, he tells us they say nothing to anyone. Right? You kind of, he stresses that. He says nothing to anyone. So no whisper, no murmur. They don't even mention to people that they have a secret. You know, or they have some big news that they're excited to tell them, but they can't yet. Nothing to anyone. This feels so weird, so strange. It, it almost feels like this shouldn't be the ending, right? In fact, such is the ending of verse 8 that when the early church in the 100, 150 to 200 got this message, they actually thought that the ending of Mark had been dropped off that the guy that was delivering the book of Mark, you know, kind of hit a bump on the road and, you know, the last leather skin or whatever dropped off. And so they were actually missing the ending. And so what they did, and you can see this in your Bibles, uh, it says that, that there's like another ending from some manuscripts that we have. You see it in italics there, uh, where they actually based their ending on tradition and on what other eyewitness accounts said. Right? They actually thought that the ending in verse 8 wasn't the ending, so they kind of wrote another one, you know, still based on tradition and eyewitness accounts, but they went with another ending. Now, I actually think that that's not the ending. I think that verse 8 is the ending, and I think we understand this through what we understand about Mark. I mean, Mark is a skilled author. We've seen that the whole time, and throughout the book of Mark, he's written in such a way where he tells us about Jesus Right, I mean, explicitly tells us about Jesus, all that he is and all that he has done. But throughout the book of Mark, Mark's also given us characters, right, that we can relate to. Characters that we kind of read and we ask the question, okay, what would I have done in the same position? Now, here in the book of Mark, verse 8 causes us to kind of stop. It provokes us. It challenges us. In light of the bigness of Jesus rising from the dead, verse 8 doesn't seem to fit. But I think what Mark is doing here is actually causing us to stop in our tracks and ask the question of ourselves, what would we have done? See, I don't think we can point at the women and say that their reaction was weak or poor. Right? Sure, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but the reality is they just witnessed something supernatural, right? An angel spoke to them about Jesus rising from the dead. Fear and trembling make sense. But the reality for us is we're not meant to kind of point to the women and say, you know, what should they have done? Instead, we're meant to ask of ourselves, what would we have done? And more pressingly than just what would we have done in the same situation, but what will we do? How will we respond to the big news of Jesus' death and resurrection? How will we respond to what Jesus has just done, to what we've just seen? Ultimately, it's the question, what does it mean for us? 
And as we read the book of Mark and as we read these last verses here, I think it means two things for us. The first one has to do with the resurrection and the second has to do with the response. So firstly, what it means for us is that we can have confidence. We can have confidence that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. As we read this, we see eyewitness accounts. And there's three eyewitness accounts, which means that this was not a dream or a vision or a hallucination because that only happens to one person. This happened to three people. They saw this. They can kind of get together. Mark can check with them if this really happened. We can have confidence in an eyewitness account. But we can also have confidence because of the women right? The, the reality is women back in those days in a Jewish court, their testimony wasn't held up to be true. So if Mark was making this up, he wouldn't have used women, right? That's just the reality of the culture that he was writing. And he would have picked some of the disciples or some of the men, because at least in the court of law, that would have held up. But he uses women because that's what happened. He records to us that three women were the first to see this and witness this. We can have confidence in the resurrection. We can have confidence because of what we saw about the stone and the seal and the guard, right? The disciples aren't just going to be able to band together. I mean, they're fishermen and tax collectors. They're not going to be able to just come together and fight off a guard that's been trained in this. We can have confidence in the resurrection. We can have confidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But the reality is, is our confidence doesn't stop in Mark chapter 16. We have more confidence than just what we see in Mark chapter 16. And one place that I love that kind of talks about the confidence we have is in an article online called How Easter Killed My Atheism. It's an article by a guy called Lee Strobel. And in it, he writes how he was an atheist and his wife was an agnostic. And he came home one day to the worst news ever that she had become a Christian. And so what does he do as a husband? He tries to prove her wrong. And so he goes about for two years trying to prove her wrong. And he knew that to do this, he needed to disprove the resurrection. He knew that the whole of Christianity hinged on the resurrection. And so he went about trying to disprove the resurrection. But he said to his questions, he received answers. And one by one, his atheism began to unbuckle. He said, did Jesus really die? His answer, even atheist historians say that Jesus really died. He said, was it, was it a legend? Was it just made up that Jesus rose again? And he said, it, it actually took two uh, generations in the ancient world for legend to develop. right? And yet we have within months eyewitness accounts of Jesus rising from the dead. He said, was the tomb really empty? He points out that even Christians and non-Christians knew where the tomb was. Right? They could have gone and checked out the tomb. On top of that, he said, even Jesus' enemies, right, the religious leaders, they tried to put the empty tomb on the disciples. And they said that the disciples stole the body. But I mean, we, we looked at that with the guard. But he also points out that it's unlikely that you would die for a lie, which all the disciples did, apart from John, who was living by himself on an island. Right? You, you wouldn't die for a lie. And so he says, we can have confidence that the tomb was empty. He said, did people actually see Jesus? 
He says uh, it, there are nine sources inside and outside the Bible that point to the apostles actually claiming that they saw Jesus. Over and over again, questions become answered. He points out, and you can read this online, was it myth? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? And one by one, his questions were answered until finally he said this. And this was his quote at the end. He said, in the end, after I had thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. Now, we know that the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus is a bold claim. We know that, right? We know that people don't just rise from the dead. We understand that. We understand that Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, because of the evidence and what we see, as Lee Strobel says, it actually takes more faith to not believe in it than to believe. We can have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And since he rose from the dead, we can have confidence of all the stuff that we've seen in the book of Mark, that he is God among us, that he did die to save the world, that he is the only hope that we have of something greater. We can have confidence in this. See, as we gather together today, we are not like holding on to some random hope Right? This is not some vague thing that we're not really sure about. We meet as a people who can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the first thing that it means for us. But the second thing has to do with our response. Confidence is supposed to lead to courage. Confidence is supposed to lead to courage. See, these women, they don't do anything with this. Now, we said before, right, I don't think we can, you know, laugh at them or point at them, right? They, they went through a crazy kind of weekend to go away in fear, to go away trembling. That makes sense. And the reality is Mark doesn't really want us to do that anyway. The point is we're meant to ask of ourselves, what are we going to do with this? And confidence in Jesus' resurrection is supposed to lead to courage, where we can go boldly knowing that the God who rose from the dead is the God with us. Now, sometimes when I think about that, right, I wonder for myself, what would verse 8 read if verse 8 was written about me? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like, if at the end of your life, if people spoke about your life, what would they say about you and what you did and how you responded in light of the resurrection of Jesus? And I mean, if it was written in the style of verse 8, what would it say of you? Right? Because I wonder, I mean, I have moments where I wonder if people would say of me that in light of the resurrection, Ben was complacent and lazy and said not much to anybody because he just couldn't be bothered. Sometimes I, I wonder if people would say of me, Ben was too busy with his time in light of the resurrection, too selfish with his time, and again said not much to anybody because he just didn't have any time. I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by the feeling of what, what people would actually say about me. I mean, I wonder what, what would people say about you, right? In light of the resurrection, what emotion is it that drives you? What is the emotion that you were driven by in your life? Is it fear? Is it complacency? What is it that drives you? Is it courage? And then what about with your words? Right? What would they say about how you used your words in your life? 
how you built relationships. I mean, what would they say about you? Would they say you said everything to everyone that you could? Would they say that you said everything to the friends and family because you were so driven by Jesus rising from the dead? Or would it be different to that? And what would they say is the thing that drives you? What would the because be? Would it be because you were afraid or because you were empowered or because you were scared? What's the because in your life? See, it's challenging when we think about this, right? We think about for us what verse 8 would be like, and, and it's meant to kind of stop us in our tracks and ask that. But see, the reality is we're not meant to stop and kind of loathe maybe what it would say of us. But Mark is writing this here for us so that we can stop and recognize that we have the chance to change the script. We have the chance to change the outcome in our life of what people would say about us. And confidence is supposed to lead to courage. We can change the script. We can change it from here. We can move out and for the rest of 2018 and into 2019, we can change what it might be. And we can go in courage, in boldness, empowered by the fact that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the fact that the God who rose again is the God who is with us. And we can go in confidence, in courage, into our world and say what we know to be true. But if that script is going to change, we actually need to go in courage. And so the challenge we face is first and foremost to have confidence in Jesus' resurrection. But then secondly, to go into our world in boldness and in courage, knowing that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us in this. Lord, we know that sometimes it's hard to forget, it's hard to uh, remember the confidence that we can have in Jesus. Lord, we know that sometimes in the face of conversations that we have, in the face of friends and family, sometimes we get scared and we are captured and caught up by fear. God, we pray that in this space, that you would empower us by your Spirit to have confidence in Jesus' resurrection. And that this confidence would lead to courage, that we would go boldly knowing the hope that we have and knowing that the God who conquered death is with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.